you would please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning's passage is Acts 16, 11 through 34, which can be found in the Pew Bible on a page that I forgot to write down. <laughs> so, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, uh, and all her household, she urged us, saying, If you had judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that the, their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights, and he rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them out that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before him, and he rejoiced along with the entire household that he had believed in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Travis, for that reading, and thank you all so much for this weekend. It's been such a warm reception. I'm so thankful for the time I've been able to, to spend with you all. Um, it's been a hot weekend, uh, but I'm from Florida, so that's it's okay. I'm, I'm used to that. I'm comfortable with that. Um, but I did want to also particularly thank the elders, the staff, and the succession team for all the work that they have done over the last few months, and uh, thank all of you for this opportunity uh, to get to proclaim God's Word this morning. What a high calling, what a privilege to preach God's Word to God's people as we gather 
Um, it's a joy for me to be able to do that this morning, and I want to begin uh, by opening in prayer. So let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you have been so evidently faithful to Westgate over the years. Would you manifest your faithfulness once again this morning by blessing the preaching and hearing of your word now? Holy Spirit, we so desperately need you to come and illumine our eyes, attune our ears, enable our hearts to respond to this word as we should. And Lord, I would particularly ask that you would help me not to fear men and their opinions of me amidst this candidating sermon, but rather to fear you, seek to honor you by faithfully conveying your word to your people for our good and your glory. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I was telling Travis and Bruce that I'm, I'm billing this sermon as a late addition to your sermon series in the book of Acts that you did several months back. Uh, I love the church, I love the book of Acts, and I just couldn't resist uh, jumping in with this, with this passage, which is one of my favorites to get to preach on. And I want to begin today our, our reflection of this passage with some thoughts from a renowned professor of church history and mission named Laman Sana, who wrote a book a few years back with a very thought-provoking question as its title. And the question is, whose religion is Christianity? In the book, which you'll, you'll see up on the screen, hopefully, uh, he talks about the stunning fact that contrary to popular belief, Christianity is not exclusively a Western religion, but in fact has been, from its very foundation, a multi-ethnic, multiracial, multilingual, multicultural movement that has the capacity to take root in every single culture and every single people all around the world. And it's doing so more and more every day. This is one of the most exciting times ever in the history of the church in terms of how much the gospel is taking root amidst all the peoples of the earth. Exciting times. And so therefore, his, question, uh, his answer to the question posed in the book is that, of course, no one culture or even continent has primary ownership of this faith. It's truly a world religion in the sense that it has the ability to manifest in and transform every single country, culture, and people group under the sun. In many ways, I think that's exactly the profound reality that we see so wonderfully portrayed the deeper and deeper we go in the book of Acts. For as the book progresses, the further away we get from an exclusively Jewish church and the closer we draw to a movement which demonstrates the amazing truth of the message about Christ, the gospel message, the good news, is indeed good news for all. In fact, I'm hoping we'll see today that the gospel message is for all types of people, comes through all sorts of means, and brings about all kinds of transformations. I want to say that again. The gospel message is for all types of peoples, comes in all sorts of means, and brings about all sorts of of transformations. And this wasn't just true in the days of the apostles. This is just as true in our own day right now. We're going to see this point powerfully portrayed in the form of three witnesses, as it were, that are going to be brought to the stand. Three testimonies, three conversion stories that we see before us in this text. And in these testimonies of God's sovereign grace at work to save sinners, we'll see first that the gospel is good news for the religious, witnessed in a woman who was in many ways a success. Then we're going to see the gospel is good news for the oppressed, witnessed in a young woman whose life was a mess. 
And finally, we'll see that the gospel is good news for the disinterested. Witness in a man who found himself all of a sudden under duress. Now, I'll admit that last one wasn't quite what I wanted, but I needed the, uh, the rhyming three-point uh, sub-points. <laughs> sub so we're there, okay? Um, so let's begin with good news for the religious. Seen in the salvation of a woman who was in many ways a success in verses 11 to 15. That's where we're going to see that. As we pick up here, remember that we're looking in on what is known as Paul's second missionary journey. An effort, as Luke makes clear, that's no merely human affair. Rather, it occurs entirely by God's gracious direction and under his sovereign sway. In our text today, the apostolic band arrives at Philippi, and as it notes, it's a fairly major city in the region, and yes, eventually the city that will host the church that Paul will write the book of Philippians to. And it says in verse 12 that they were there some days, right, for a season. Now, if you were in Philippi for a season and you were looking to proclaim the gospel and see a church planted in untilled territory, where do you think you would start? Well, the answer is clear from verse 13. A ladies' prayer meeting, of course. I mean, you know they'll have good coffee, probably a nice bit to eat, but that's, that's not the point. Um, Paul and his band intentionally seek out a place where people are ripe to hear the gospel message. Namely, a place where, it seems, God-fearing Gentile women were gathering to pray to the God of the Hebrew Scriptures. And there, they meet what ends up being the first convert on the European continent, a woman named Lydia. Now, verse 14 tells us several things about her. First, we're told that she was a dealer in purple cloth. Now, I bet you didn't know that there could be a fashion specialty just purple cloth, but uh, they were doing things a bit differently back then. Uh, and this would have meant to the original readers that Lydia, well, she was pretty well off. In fact, she was probably very wealthy. How do we know that? Because purple cloth, she was extremely uh, expensive in that day, only used for royal goods or luxury goods. So we know this is a businesswoman who was doing quite well for herself. She'd be like the independently wealthy woman about town here in Metro West, well-educated, Lots of connections, owns her own business. She's a success on nearly every front. To put it in Patriot football terms, this is the woman sitting quite comfortably in the box seats. But we also learn something else about her that's very important here. The text says that she was also a worshiper of God. And that's almost a technical term here in that day for a Gentile who was reading the Hebrew Bible and trying to please the God that those scriptures spoke about without becoming fully Jewish. So Lydia is, for lack of a better term, a pious woman, a religious woman. And Paul is convinced that the gospel is for all types of people, including religious people. And so he shares the message about Christ with her. He teaches, no doubt, about how Christ was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises and types being the promised Savior who would one day come and rescue and reconcile not just the Jews, but all peoples on the face of the earth. We can just envision Paul emphasizing what we learn in Luke 24, that the law, the prophets, the writings, they speak most ultimately about Christ. They point to him. We can imagine Paul saying to her with some excitement, you know that Old Testament that you read and seek to understand? Let me give you the key to understanding it all and the depths of it all. 
And he does. And wonder of wonders, verse 14 tells us simply but powerfully, as the NIV puts it, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. The Lord did that. Isn't that amazing? Paul shares the message. He's sowing the seed. He's just seeking to be a faithful laborer. But it's the Lord who opens the heart and enables this woman to believe and be saved. That's powerful stuff going on. Now, we didn't know much about Lydia prior to her conversion, but what we see in verse 15 is enough to hint that a major transformation has occurred in this woman's life. We see that, first of all, in the fact that she, along with her whole house, are baptized, a public proclamation of their newfound faith. But then, beyond that, Lydia insists on becoming the host, or in this case, the hostess, for Paul's missionary band, right? giving them a place of refuge, as well as setting uh, forth food, a good portion of financial support. All those things are happening here. A beautiful saying comes to mind as we look in on this, saying is, once the heart is opened, the home is open too. And Rosaria, Rosaria Butterfield, who is a former strident atheist who radically converted to Christ, she means the same thing in her book that's entitled, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Butterfield emphasizes that when we're graciously adopted into God's family and welcomed into his eternal home, we will inevitably become people who are just as eager to invite people into our homes and our lives, even people who are very, very different from us. Indeed, Lydia's belief in the good news enables her to be a woman of generous hospitality, hosting these missionaries and, as we'll see at the end of the chapter, providing a regular gathering place for the newly found church that's going to be there in Philippi. Now, someone might read the story and find themselves asking something like this. You know, is the gospel really necessary for someone to live like this? Maybe Lydia was just a naturally very kind, generous woman, right? We could imagine that being the case. But the text is straining to communicate to us that even Lydia as pious and perhaps even as kind and generous as she might have been before coming to Christ, she still needed the gospel. She still needed grace. She still needed to be saved from herself, from her sin, from God's wrath, and from the slavery that comes from religiosity. Now, what do I mean by that last statement? Well, what I mean is that we often think about the, the lawless pagans out there as the ones who really need to be saved, right? They're coming into your mind's eye right now, even as I say that, right? There's some person, there's some set of people. Oh yeah, they really need it, right? Um, it might be, we think of the ancient pagan reprobates worshiping in polytheistic temples, or the licentious womanizing frat boys, or greedy Wall Street swindlers of our own day, right? They're the ones that need to be saved. True Christianity insists that it's not just those people out there that need to be saved. It is good church-going people, like you and me, <laughs> like us, who stand just as much in need of the forgiveness of our sin and of the grace and mercy found in Christ alone. Do we believe that? This text is challenging us in that. Tim Keller states the same truth quite powerfully when he says this. It's going to be up on the screen. 
He's saying both religious and irreligious people are avoiding God as Savior and Lord. Both are seeking to keep control of their own lives by looking to something besides God as their salvation. Religious legalism and irreligious relativism are just different attempts at their own salvation, attempts at self-salvation. Are you tracking what he's saying there? See, we've got to understand religion and the gospel message provide two completely different operating modes for the Christian life, for, the, for life. With religion, the mode is this. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Right? I obey, and therefore I'm accepted by God. That's the religious mindset. So as long as I do the right things, live a good enough life, say enough prayers, attend church, hey, I'm in, I'm good, I'm okay. Right? But see, the gospel message begins by making clear, absolutely clear, you'll never successfully be your own savior. It's impossible. You need someone who is perfect, where you fail and who is willing to pay the penalty for your and mine sinful pride and judgmentalism of all those people out there. Or whatever your brand of self-righteousness is, we all have it. Right? Of course, that person is Christ. That's what Lydia is experiencing in a way she never had before. Freedom in knowing that she, a Gentile woman, who knew there was no way she could keep all the rules of the Jewish law, was now reconciled to God because of what Christ had done, believing the message as it came from Paul's mouth supported by the Scriptures. Religious people, nice, well-behaved, moral, church-going folks need to be saved. They need the gospel. They need the work of Christ on their behalf. And the good news is Christ died so that religious people could be given new hearts that would obey God out of a profound sense of joy and thanksgiving for the gift that they had received by grace. And so before we move on, I just have to ask, are you perhaps that sort of religious person in need of salvation today? Maybe you've never thought in these terms before. But are you just maybe a Lydia? I mean, there's a lot of religiosity out there, everyone, right? And I'll be the first to admit, there's a ton of it where I come from in the South, okay? But I hope we all realize that the South doesn't have a monopoly on religiosity. Luther rightly said, it's the default mode of the fallen human heart. Legalism, we will default to that. It's alive and well in the New England area and in the Boston area, let me assure you. Okay, just consider how religiously folks attend Mass or their nearby yoga in the park or their local coffee shop, right? Those are actually religious activities in a way. Religion in and of itself enslaves, hardens, and can't provide peace, ultimate peace. But the gospel liberates softens and establishes confidence to actually live lives of joy and love. That's why religious people like you and me need the same good news that Lydia received so many years ago. And if we believe as she did, we too can be saved and find life to the full. That's a promise for us from God's Word. Well, for our next witness, we're going to move on to verses 16 to 24 and see someone whose life is a mess 
demonstrating that the gospel is good news for the oppressed. Here our second conversion bio involves an enslaved young woman and one who we see very quickly is in so many ways the polar opposite of Lydia. Something we notice even the fact that we don't even know this woman's name. If Lydia was wealthy, this woman not only owned nothing, but was extremely indebted, hence her enslaved status. If Lydia had lots of power and privilege, this woman was the lowest of the low in the social hierarchy of the day. And if Lydia was a woman of pious and religious nature, well, this woman seems to be engaged in some way in the dark side of the spiritual world, possessed by an evil spirit that caused her nothing but spiritual turmoil and continual misfortune. In fact, what we learn here is that this young woman had a spirit within her that enabled her to predict the future, to do some fortune-telling, basically. And in all likelihood, she was sold into slavery because of this lucrative capacity, probably from a very young age. So just to make sure we're tracking, okay, to stay with the Pat's football picture here, while Lydia is up in the box seats, this young woman would be the girl who was trafficked and forced to commit indecent acts in the back room of a party. Okay, that's what we're talking about here. That's the level of who we're engaging in the story. This woman's life has probably never been good. And into this nightmare of a life come these men proclaiming the message of Christ. And it seems that this evil spirit that she has takes control at this point and causes her to follow Paul's gang around, constantly proclaiming, as it says in verse 17, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Wow, how true. Listen to those words, right? Truth. But we have to admit this is pretty bizarre, right? And of course, there's a little bit of a deja vu moment here. Does it sound familiar? It sounds a lot like the kind of things proclaimed uh, in the days of Jesus' ministry, right? By demon-possessed people. Very similar themes happening here. And as there, Paul's response after several days of this is exorcism, right? Makes sense. The text says in verse 18 that Paul became annoyed, although that word is actually better translated here as deeply disturbed. He was disturbed at what he was seeing happening to this woman and happening to them in their ministry. And so he said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. This was not an outburst of uncontrolled anger. Rather, it was actually an act of righteous compassion for the young woman and indignation with the Spirit who was trying to thwart the effectiveness of Paul's ministry and the clarity of his message. And miraculously, by the Lord Jesus' authority, the spirit departs, and simultaneously the young woman is healed. And here we see that while Lydia was reached primarily through words, this enslaved gal, who I think it's safe to assume in this text became a believer in Christ, was largely reached through deeds, through acts of mercy and compassion. Because there can be no doubt that what gets this young woman's attention is not a well-honed argument regarding the Old Testament scriptures, right? That's not what gets her attention. Far from it. What gets her attention regarding Christ and His being the Savior is the way that He shows compassion and wins a spiritual battle. How He emerges triumphant in a power encounter. 
That's what's happening here. And the vast majority of people in our culture today will think that this is all a bunch of hocus-pocus, right? Kind of have to acknowledge that element of what we're reading in this text and what our cultural backdrop is going to have us thinking. And maybe some of us in this room are tempted to think that as we read this text. There's a lot of denial regarding the reality of the spiritual world in our time, especially within a highly educated environment like this one where it's seen as almost intellectual suicide to believe in angels and the demons and, and the like. But I find it interesting that a secular vision for the world that says nothing more exists than what we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands, it can never quite stamp out the suspicion that there's more going on in the world than meets the eye. You know, from TV shows that explore the paranormal, like Stranger Things, anyone? To the B-movies we like to watch on dark, stormy nights, to the ghost tours you'll find in every historic town all over the country, there is still a lingering sense, even if it's laughed away, that there are powers in this world that are spiritual, real, and evil. And this young woman was plagued. She was possessed. She was oppressed by one particular spirit, perhaps her whole life. This wasn't theory for her. This was life for her. And it took an encounter with Jesus through his designated representatives to set her free from her spiritual bondage. And set her free, he did. In fact, the freedom she gained was greater than she could ever imagine, for not only was she freed from the dominion of her demonic spiritual master, but she was also freed from the oppression of her economic earthly masters. As one scholar put it so well, when Paul exercised the spirit that possessed her, he exercised their source of income as well. Indeed, the, the men who were once exploiting this woman for her fortune-telling skills were now, well, without a fortune-teller. That business is done. And we can take it by their reaction in verses 19 to 21 that they are none too pleased with their newfound bankruptcy, right? What ensues is a reactive drumming up of charges that leads to a mob attack and eventually to city officials approving Paul and Silas being stripped and beaten. They're flogged and without a trial, they're put in prison. Paul and Silas are officially labeled as disturbers of the peace, right? Forced to pay the price that comes when spiritual healing has social, economic, and political implications, as it does here. And you know, I'm glad that this part of the narrative is in the Bible because it gives us a very, some very realistic expectations for what will happen as faithful, even powerful gospel ministry goes on, right? For not only is it realistic about the persecution and ridicule which believers will experience and do all over the world today, but it's also realistic about the lack of recognition of what's really going on and what the proper response should be, right? I mean, this young woman is healed in the name of Jesus by men proclaiming the good news that God has made it possible for wayward sinners, that's all of us, to be reconciled back to him through Christ's work as it's applied by the Spirit. Has there ever been a greater message expressed with greater power? And yet, what's the response of almost everyone looking on that day? It's absolute ridicule and derision 
and rejection. Sad. While everyone should have been celebrating the freedom that this oppressed woman found that day, the sad reality is the spiritual blindness, which only God's grace can heal, prevented them from seeing Christ at work. You know, one of the things I've talked to many of you about in the last several weeks is uh, the fairly grim spiritual climate of New England, and specifically the Metro West area. A climate where there seems to be very little interest in the things of Christ, and instead of prevalent ambivalence and even outright hostility to the gospel in some cases, right? What if something similar to what happened in our text happened in this context? What do you think would be the reaction? We can easily imagine the reaction of onlookers in the media coverage to follow if an event of healing and accompanying gospel proclamation were to occur in Copley Square today, right? Do you think we met with a multitude of bended knees and confessing lips? Maybe. Much more likely it would involve cries of mockery and claims of charlatanism, right? But Westgate, we can take encouragement that it is the Lord's good pleasure to soften hearts and open ears as he sees fit. I mean, the vast majority of the people in this story, the businessmen, the ruling authorities, the assembled crowd, they missed it. They missed it. But by God's grace, there was no way this young woman could miss it that day. Right? She had been liberated. She would never forget who it was that saved her from the deep, dark pit that her life had become. And that's the power of Christ and the gospel on display, and it's still on display today for those whom the Lord grants eyes to see it. It's on display in this room right now. Well, lastly, we're going to look at the gospel as good news for the disinterested now. Demonstrating the testimony of one under duress, which we'll witness in verses 25 to 34 at the end of the passage. I love how one pastor asked this section. Now, if you know God is appointing each of these encounters we see unfolding, then the question you have to ask at this point is, how do you reach a jailer? And of course, the answer is, get your apostle in jail. <laughs> right? I love that. So that's what God does. Isn't that amazing? God's in charge. He's sovereign over all the turmoil that's unfolding in this story. And in hindsight, we see it's in part to reach this very jailer. Once again, we don't know his name, right? But who is he? Do we know anything about him? It's likely he's a retired Roman soldier because these were the kinds of jobs made available to military guys after their prime. And this is where they kind of settled in after the days on the front were over. The reality is this man was likely neither a success like Lydia or a mess like the enslaved woman. In all likelihood, he was just an average Joe, a blue-collar guy who's just regular, solidly middle class. That's what we're talking about here. And in the spiritual arena, he was probably not seeking any kind of religious truth at all. More just going with the flow. You know, staying with the status quo of life. Not really piqued by any of the developments that were happening with Paul and Silas, all these claims about Jesus. Disinterested. Apathetic. To stay with our Patriots football equivalent, right? We're painting a picture here. He's the guy who's still delivering our mail or bagging our groceries while the Pats game is going on. Right? Life is stable, uninterrupted, 
bland? That is until this night. On this night, there's a lot that doesn't keep with the status quo. Let's start with that earthquake. All right, earthquakes were common in that region, but earthquakes that came at such a time with this particular group of peculiar prisoners who claimed to represent the all-powerful God and shook the foundation of the prison, opened the doors, threw off the chains, now that was something that didn't happen every day, right? And of course, open prison doors do not a happy jailer make. Primarily because in the ancient world, right, the typical practice was to take the life of any guard who allowed a prisoner to escape under his watch. That was the default. Okay? So given that backdrop and the heat of this tumultuous moment, it's a bit more understandable why the jailer is drawing his sword here, about to run himself through. Maybe this was probably a former military man, likely a man of honor, and he was convinced that it's already too late. Prisoners are gone, you know, and his life is forfeit. Might as well go ahead and get it over with on his, on his terms. That is until he hears words of hope uttered forth in the dim lighting. Don't harm yourself. We'll, we're all here. <laughs> what? All of a sudden, before we know it, this average Joe, this disinterested, spiritually apathetic man probably, falls trembling before Paul and Silas asking the question, we all long to be asked, don't we? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's like the glorious question any Christian wants to have happen, you know? This is the moment. What's going on here? What can explain this sort of behavior and this all of a sudden locking in on spiritual truth and the necessity of this desperate moment? I think what can best explain it, assuming and building on the obvious answer that God was powerfully at work in this man's heart, was that the jailer was reached here not through logic as with Lydia or the power of liberation as with the enslaved woman, but largely through the very practical example of godly character lived out before him, right? Think about it. What the jailer saw that night included things like hearing these prisoners who helped a troubled woman and were thanked with blows to their body and chains around their hands, praying and singing hymns to God in the face of their suffering. Wow. That's congregational singing of a whole nother level. But you know, I think the even greater thing the jailer witnessed that night was the Christ-like response of kindness to cruelty. How so? Well, the jailer knew that once the doors were open, I mean, it was every man for himself at that point, right? And given the injustice of their imprisonment, he would have had every expectation that Paul and Silas would have been hopping in the first train out of Dodge. And yet they didn't. In a mini-redemptive moment, verse 28 tells us the criminals stayed in order that the very life of their imprisoner could be saved. They repaid evil with good. So much like Jesus, the one they followed and proclaimed, right? See, the truth is sometimes we have to show the gospel to someone who could, could care less initially, right? Because especially if they've heard it all before, right? We've encountered people who... Oh, yeah, don't come anywhere near me with that message, right? That's what we call kind of the slant approach to evangelism. Have you ever heard of it, talked about that, that way? One author I love says it like this. The hard of hearing need loud shouts, and those nearly blind need large, startling figures in order to, betray, uh, to portray something, to behold something. Well, this disinterested jailer 
beheld something that night. I mean, he kneels before Paul and Silas and basically confesses, you have something I don't have. Your God enables you to handle abuse and tribulation in a way I've never seen before, and I want that. You have a freedom that can't be taken away with bars and chains. How can I get that kind of freedom? How can I be saved the way you have been saved? And they answer in verse 31. Oh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Now this, this isn't a believe in like believing in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny, right? It can sound like that. That's not what we're talking about here. It's rather trusting the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. Entrusting yourself and your well-being and satisfaction and eternal security into his hands and no one else's. It's the trusting of jumping out of a plane with the belief that the piece of fabric inside your backpack will indeed deploy and allow you to drift to safety, right? You're entrusting yourself to the care of that parachute in that moment. This jailer does that kind of trusting here. He believes the good news. He trusts Christ for salvation. And in doing so, a transformation of epic proportions begins to unfold in this man's life. A life once apathetic and bland, now injected with rigor and joy. First of all, we see the transformation is responsive. Baptism again, mentioned in verse 33. A line in the sand for him and apparently for his entire household who also seemed to come to believe as Paul shared the word of the Lord with them as well. Right? Families are on view in this. Household units. Second, did you notice in a brief moment of tender humility, the jailer stoops to wash the wounds of the beaten Paul and Silas. The thing any decent human being would have done in the first place, but now the jailer does it out of a newfound faith. He washed them of their wounds the same night that he had his sins washed away by the wounds of Christ. Third, we see a transformation in this man's hospitality. He invites these men in, who just moments before were prisoners and therefore enemies. He invites them in and sets a feast before them. I mean, there is now a sweetness at this table and in this home as his family looks on and Christ fills this place with the warm glow of his eternal love. This is a picture to behold. And fourth, and perhaps most powerfully, we see the jailer's transformation, the fact that, as the NIV has it in verse 34, he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. Filled with joy. Again, plug in your mailman, the guy who bags your groceries, someone you sense maybe just floating along in life with no particular zeal or direction. You know, you see him around town. It's just going on. Nothing's happening. And then think about what a genuine encounter with Christ and his people would do for that guy. Right? The same thing it does for this jailer as the Lord is at work. It would lead him to deep, lasting joy. The jailer rejoices here for salvation is coming. He wasn't even looking for it. He didn't know what he didn't have, but he's certainly glad he found it when he did. This is no longer the disinterested man living the status quo. He and his family are changed forever. And it's almost as an afterthought that verses 35 to 39 go on to report the rest of the story. 
where we have to laugh as the city officials seek to release those men whom God released hours ago, right? There's a kind of comical element. Verse 40 closes out the story with one final glimpse of this crew of misfit converts, a crew that already embraced different races, different economic classes, even different approaches to life and what people find compelling and powerful, right? The different means by which they were reached. Think about that for a second. Think about what this newly founded church in Philippi represents. Here they were folks who didn't have anything to do with one another apart from Christ, now linking arms as family, as those adopted by God. And the dividing walls of hostility from political alignment to ethnic pride to class status to wealth, all of them are being brought down out of a common need for Christ and trust of him. This chapter portrays for us in a powerful way the fact that this gospel message about Christ is indeed good news for every man, woman, and child all over the earth. I mean, as verse 40 makes clear, there were many folks who came to believe in Christ in Philippi. In the midst of this church planning mission, there were undoubtedly a myriad of conversion stories that could have been told. And yet I want us to close with this. Did you find yourself wondering as we were reading through this passage, why does Luke very intentionally pick out these three stories of the many stories that could have been told? What do you think? A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Sounds like the beginning of a bad Bible joke, right? But see, there was a deeper meaning in Luke's specific selections. For as many commentators have pointed out, there was a prayer that was prayed by Jewish men in that day. A prayer that had no doubt been prayed by Paul countless times before he was saved. And the prayer to be prayed by Jewish men at the beginning of every day was this. O Lord, I thank you that you did not make me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Whoa. A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Now entering the kingdom of God ahead of the self-righteous person because Christ had made it possible for them to do so. You better believe Paul stopped praying that prayer in light of what he had experienced in Christ. That prayer was done. In fact, in light of those sorts of experiences, he penned the powerful words we find in Galatians 3, 26 to 29. It's going to be up on the screen for us to reflect on. That same Paul will write from what he had seen and from what the Spirit inspired him to say. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see the categories again, men and women, slave and free, Jew and Gentile. All are one, all are family, all are heirs, all are saved because of the righteousness of Christ in which they were clothed by faith by faith alone. Isn't that what we have seen so vividly today 
in this passage, that the gospel message is for all types of people. Comes through all sorts of means. Brings about all sorts of transformations. It has been an in-living color testimonial of that glorious reality. And so, Westgate, I, I think in light of that, three responses are appropriate. One is self-reflection. Where are you at today in all this? Spiritual climate, spiritual interest, religious, non, a mess, oppressed, right? Are you a religious success? Or a disinterested person, apathetic to religion, all this stuff about Jesus? A person under duress who needs to find relief, satisfaction, freedom, or salvation somewhere, somehow? Or perhaps you're none of the above. But the categories, of course, are endless, right? This is just an example. It's just three. (laughs) But the universal truth remains. We all need to be saved from our sin and the wrath of God poured out justly on those who rebel against him. That is all of us. It is all of us. Another appropriate response is encouragement. Westgate, I think we ought to be very encouraged by this passage. That the Lord has people in this area, in Metro West, in your town, in your work, in your schools. He has people that he is wonderfully at work calling unto himself. And absolutely nothing can thwart that work, do you see? Amidst the blatant unbelief, enslaving religiosity, irreligious paganism that in many ways defines this region, Christ is at work. And he is at work in and through his people, in and through Westgate, among many other churches that faithfully proclaim and are seeking to live out that gospel message. Right? Who is that person for you right now that's coming to mind? That you're you're beginning to maybe see signs. It's going to take a long time, probably. But the Lord is at work. We want to cooperate with that work. We'll be encouraged in that work. And I think the third appropriate response to such a passage is thanksgiving. If you are a Christian today, if you have come to believe this good news for all and have experienced the joy and peace and salvation that are found only in Christ, well, in some sense, There's nothing more proper than to give him thanks and praise that is his due for enabling you to join this ragtag group of folks who proclaim in word and deed this message about Christ and the salvation he's won for us is indeed good news for all. Let's pray together in light of that. Let's go. Father, we are thankful for this word for the way it so wonderfully, vividly portrays the good news for all, all types of people, all spiritual conditions of various sorts, all interests, all classes, all races, all patterns of life. You have been graciously at work in Christ by your Spirit to call your people unto yourself and to use your representatives, the apostles, and the church after them to proclaim this good news and live it out in our lives. Help us as a church, we pray, to do so more faithfully, to trust you as we go out into our various arenas of life and our worlds. 
and to be encouraged that you are at work. We long to see more and more people come to know this lasting joy in Christ. Help us in that. We pray all this in Christ's mighty name. Amen.